immigration numbers, challenges, and so, mm, solutions? Uh, too soon to say. Experts have been warning that as we collectively age as a nation, our economy could get a little bit wonky. Uh, there could be some challenges around economic growth, uh, tax structures, instability, and things like the healthcare, creating instability in things like the healthcare system, for instance. The thought being that if we welcome more skilled immigrants, this helps fix things. And so current government policies heavily favor immigration, which we know. But now some people wonder if maybe too many people are coming in a little too quickly. And the older you are, the more you may be wondering because, well, that's part of the problem with getting older. Uh, the older we get, the more of us, uh, we, we, we tend to want things to stay exactly the same as they were. We tend to look for ways to make things the way they used to be, which is not ideal. Canada's population grew by 1.2 million people in the past 12 months. That really stretches um, older brains beyond incredulity big time. This is more than twice as fast or twice the number as 2019 and years prior. To compare, the U.S. population, which is 10 times bigger, grew by about the same net number. So we as a nation of 40 million brought in 1.2 million. Uh, the U.S., I think, is about 360 million, so about nine times the population. They brought in around 1.2 million people. So are we uh, nine times as great as America? obviously. Anyway, this big jump is creating all kinds of concerns, right? All kinds of concerns. And, and why is it happening? Well, in a word, policy. We raised the target to 500,000 people per year by 2025, but lately it's the non-permanent residents uh, that are creating the real story. Non-permanent permanent residents, NPRs. Um, I'm not going to use that acronym. Of the 1.2 million new people, 60% are non-permanent residents, uh, people with work permits, people on temporary visas, etc. And now this has helped with labor shortages, but somehow the number of people that have come in for this through these programs have surprised experts. We have a lot of experts that are consistently surprised about all kinds of different things, don't we? Now, before this recent jump, there were already concerns about not enough homes for people to rent or purchase. Uh, now, with so many people coming in, it's predicted there will be a shortage of another half a million homes in just the next two years alone. Even though the government is trying to build more homes quickly, it's kind of hard to fix this in such a short time. And when, when we hear things like what I just said, the government is trying to build more homes quickly. Well, what level of government are we talking about and what homes are we talking about? Because I don't really see a lot of government homes being built at all. Um, so, you know, the challenge, of course, is largely permits, materials, labor, time, and the cost of funds. To be fair, there are other problems beyond housing. Canada already has one of the lowest numbers of hospital beds for each person among the 34 countries in a OECD study. And even though the government is trying to hire more healthcare workers, it might not be enough with so many new people to care for. We also need more roads, schools, and other things filed under infrastructure to handle all these new Canadians. Where will we get all the workers for these things? Well, we are getting them, sort of. Well, we solve some of these problems, you know, i.e. a shortage of workers by bringing in new people to work, we bump up against the problem of, of the housing. We haven't done enough 
to really get ready for all these people. That's the bottom line. Canada needs a bit of a balance between letting more people come in and making sure that there's actually enough resources for everyone. Mind you, as I've said before, balance is a pipe dream. Actually, what I've said before is balance is bullshit. Um, and it is. And this is true of work life. And it's also true of housing, medical help, social support, etc. The government needs to focus, expand its focus, pardon me, beyond what just businesses and schools alone need. Uh, you know, workers and students, that's kind of all their government really is looking at right now. And think about life in general. How do we move an extra million people through the GTA, an extra million people through the GVA? How do we transport those people around? How do we care for the percentage of them that get sick? Where do we suggest that these people live? We're currently building one bedroom this year. We are currently building one bedroom for every seven new Canadians. For every seven new people coming into this country this year, we're constructing one new bedroom. That math, you know, just doesn't seem like it's going to work out in the long run. And a sudden increase in population also creates demand for household items, you know, groceries, couches, vehicles, blenders, cutlery, plates, dishes, you know, linens, you name it. And of course, that creates distress for the Bank of Canada because they're seeing an economy that just keeps on churning along. The government needs to find a balance between helping the economy and making sure that there's enough for everyone. They need to think about how many people the country can actually handle and make sure everyone has what they need. But that's kind of like saying to the train conductor, as the train goes down the track at 200 miles an hour, hey, we should really reconsider how we built all these rail cars that are attached to the back of this train. Maybe we should rejig some of them, recreate them, replan them, think about uh, you know redoing them all together. The train's not slowing down. There's no pulling over and stopping. There's no backing up and adjusting things or fixing anything. And it's just not going to be easy at the current pace, is it? But we're going to have to figure that out because the pace isn't changing anytime soon. And so the 1.2 million person question is, will this happen again in the next 12 months? 100,000 people per month. Is that pace going to slow down? Not likely. It's going to happen again? Yeah, most likely. Mainly because temporary workers. And these were some interesting numbers that I dug into. So in an, in an effort to battle inflation, specifically wage inflation, the federal government increased the limit on the number of temporary foreign workers that most industry, industries were able to use. They increased it from 10% of the workforce to up to 30% of the workforce. Now, the policy is intended to remain in place through October of this year and will likely be extended beyond that. And these efforts to extend, or pardon me, to increase the temporary worker percentage resulted in a 68% jump in the number of positions approved for temporary foreign workers in 2022 alone. 40% of these foreign workers are in agriculture, forestry, fishing, and hunting, followed by manufacturing, food services, and accommodations. So another portion of the 1.2 million over the past 12 months, there are also international students. Student permits sat below a quarter million in 2011 and didn't, you know, didn't really budge for a long, long time. But since then, they have exceeded 800,000, 800,000 study permits currently in circulation, begging the question, what are we doing about housing for international students? An interesting perspective in the immigration story, the most interesting one that I caught on to here, is that of the asylum seeker. I think a lot of Canadians 
picture hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers entering Canada each year with you know the clothes on their back and nothing more. Uh, when in reality, the average is actually about 30,000 people per year, 30,000 out of the 500,000 to a million. However, the exception to this over the past 15 months are the 170,000 asylum seekers given three-year visas into Canada from the Ukraine. 170,000 from the Ukraine under an authorization for emergency travel. 800,000 were approved. Only 170,000 have arrived. Uh, and again, that's a surge due entirely to the war in the Ukraine. So there is also a 630,000 person question because there's 630,000 people with permits to come here and live and work for three years. Will they show up or not? We're not sure. Now, this, of course, leaves us wondering how many places to set at the dinner table. More importantly, how many bedrooms we're actually going to need. And again, we're only constructing one bedroom for every seven people coming into the country. So we've got a bit of a problem. If those other 630,000 show up, we really got a problem. So odds are the answer is more people are showing up than we're going to be ready for. So where is it all headed? So even before all these new immigration changes, Canada was known for bringing in workers from other countries. That's That's been who we've been. Since last year, there have been around 40,000 new jobs created each month, but there are still about 800,000 jobs that need to be filled. If not for all these new people coming in, there'd be even more pressure on wage inflation, which would upset the Bank of Canada even more and likely result in even higher interest rates. So if we slow immigration, are we going to actually create wage inflation? And is that actually going to push the Bank of Canada to push rates even higher? Wouldn't that be a, a bummer? Just what we would want, right? So again, all these new folks, the challenge, of course, is as they arrive, they also need to buy new things. And this drives up prices in many areas where we've had supply chain issues. So we need people here to work but we don't want them to actually buy a new couch, TV, groceries, a car, anything, uh, or you know, rent a home or, or buy a home. Uh, more people means the economy gets better in some ways, but you know, in other ways, things are changing a little too fast, and that's creating some problems. And of course, everything is connected. So like I say, if the Bank of Canada wants to keep prices steady, that might push them to raise rates further, not ideal because the further rates go, well, this is just making housing an impossibility for so many, not just buyers, but also renters, because a huge amount of the rental stock is driven by the mom and pop investor. But there, there are no mom and pop investors anymore because in the GTA and the GVA in particular, nothing cash flows, not even close. So there's no draw for individual investors. So rental supply will continue to dwindle. There will be fewer properties available for rent, period, the end. Like there's just no way that isn't going to be a reality given the interest rates of the day. So the government has to be very careful about how they handle all these changes. And, you know, it kind of begs the question, is there any hope here at all? Does the left tentacle know at all what the right tentacle is doing? Moving forward, more people coming to Canada is a good thing, I think. I hope, but hope isn't a strategy. It's just what I want to believe because I'm Canadian and, you know, I like having open doors. I want more Canadians to be a win. I want the idea of more people in our country, a growing population, to be a win. But is the reality going to be a win? 
it ultimately needs we need to plan again for more transportation solutions, homes, hospitals, and schools, etc. We need to help new people fit into the economy, but we also need to help them to fit into life on a day-to-day basis. They got to have somewhere to go at the end of the school day, at the end of the work day, to hang their hat. And ultimately, I'm not going to make a political statement, but I am going to say this is going to be a question of leadership, most likely of political leadership. Canada needs to find a balance between, and I know what I said about balance, between bringing in new people and making sure that there's enough for everyone. The thing that holds most progress back is bureaucracy. Now, look, we need a certain level of red tape. I get it. We want buildings and bridges that can withstand the test of time. They can withstand a heavy windstorm, a light earthquake. They don't catch fire. I get it. Red tape matters. Regulations matter. But Canada is increasingly in desperate need of a strong political leader that can cut through the multiple layers of bullshit fiefdoms created at every level, you know, provincial governments, municipal government, et cetera. It's just unbelievable. We need someone with the exact opposite mindset of the sentiment expressed by our current prime minister last week. We need a prime minister that actually takes charge and for better or worse, actually makes some sweeping changes that blast through the provincial and largely municipal level log jams that have created an environment where developers close on a piece of land and seven plus years later, somebody gets to put their key in the front door of their new home. Seven plus years. That's ridiculous. Yes, we need to have respect for environmental concerns and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But we don't need to respect the concerns of, you know, the 40-year resident uh, concerned about their view or their sunbathing experience uh, or their shortcut through that piece of land across the street for the last 40 years. Um, we just, we don't. I mean, we need to, to steamroll a few of these projects ahead. And we need to respect financial stability concerns, sure, but do we need to keep insisting that 20-somethings amortize a home over 25 years? Like, no 22-year-old is really going to be mortgage-free by the time they're 47 anyway. Okay, like one of them will be. Uh, Sean, I, I see you. Some of them will be, but very, very few. So, you know, and also their parents were allowed to buy with a 40-year amortization. So why did the parents get a 40-year amortization? Why did all of the people in power making these rules, well, okay, a lot of them have never had a mortgage because a lot of them have family trusts and, and, and the like. But still, if the parents got away with a 40-year amortization, surely the kids should too, especially when the parents were buying a house 10 times less expensive. In fact, I think 50-year amortizations are a savior in this. They don't have to be inflationary, not if done properly. Insert 50-year am rants uh, here. Things from a new construction, from a new home construction perspective are challenging right now, to say the least. There's a lot of work to be done. And the question is, who's going to do it? Changes need to be made. Who's going to make these changes? Will anyone make anything happen at all? Or are we just staying on this train going 200 miles an hour down the track and hang on with our eyes closed until the wheels fall off? You tell me. Yeah. In the comment section. Yeah. So what am I saying? Who might these leaders be? Yeah. Good question. Indeed. There does not really appear to be one out there that really sees uh, the perspective on it, right? 
What else do we have here? While building newer homes helps, there isn't enough time to satisfy the need. Correct. Governments own many buildings that could be converted to living quarters. Yeah, no, for sure. And we do have the room to do it. Immigration is, a po- yeah. No, I mean, immigration is a positive and, and we do need to keep the doors open. And I don't know. I mean, if you think about prefab homes, um, different chunks of land that absolutely could be plugged into infrastructure as far as sewer system, electrical grid, fresh water, et cetera. There are huge chunks of land right there, right next to all the services that could be plugged in and you could create prefabbed communities pretty quick. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I recognize the challenges and it's not going to get solved in a one-way conversation. And uh, yeah, political leadership, that's just a whole nother hot potato, isn't it? Um, that's a very challenging one. I will say that um, uh, because again, this is just make sure my editor has the hand signals on it. This is going to be uh, recorded uh, for, for the episode, but um, it could be because I'm the same age and my name rhymes with his name. And I'm also the son of a woman named Margaret. Uh, that, that, that growing up, I've, I've observed a lot of little tidbits on Justin over the years and never really understood how the guy wound up getting the job he got, uh, like a snowboard instructor, drama school teacher, leader of the leader of the country. Interesting career path. Um, but I will say, uh, I don't think Canada, as, as liberal as uh, we might like to think we are, as, as progressive as we might like, think, might like to think we are, I don't think collectively our country is going to elect a bachelor or elect someone who's separated or going through a divorce. I think that I think it's possible that um, JT's desire for another term cost him his marriage. And I think that his marriage failing has cost him another term. So oops, I think he kind of lost both things there. That's going to be a tricky one. So I think he's created a vacuum there for sure. You know, is is the Liberal Party going to hang on to him for the next election? Seems unlikely. Seems unlikely. It'll be interesting. But who knows? I don't have an opinion on that. You know what? I sat there writing out what I just read to you guys on immigration this morning, and I'm not real happy with it. I'm, I'm going to go back. I feel like what I do these days is I, I write up, uh, I wrote a management update as well last week, and I feel like I write up a lot of things outlining problems but I'm not outlining enough solutions. And I don't know, maybe my brain's just not big enough to come up with the solutions. Like I say, we're as, you know, to to bring it back to mortgage world, we're all kind of waging a war on three fronts right now, right? We're being attacked on three different fronts. We've got lower volume of transactions. We've got a steadily shrinking maximum mortgage approval amount thanks to the stress test rising. And we have commissions cut in half due to the shorter terms being taken. So you're doing less business. The business you're doing is smaller per transaction and the commission being generated is exponentially smaller. So it is a challenging time uh, for sure. And you know what I'm gonna say, the only thing out there is the telephone. So pick up that telephone and make some calls and make something happen. All right, I'm gonna leave it at that. I'll try and come back with 
full mortgage focus next Tuesday. Uh, but this is what's been on my mind the last few weeks. These immigration numbers are just unbelievable. And um, and and I'm living in a construction site that on Friday, there was one laborer, one on Friday, Friday going into a long weekend in the summer, I get it, but only one person on the entire site. It is unbelievable. It's like it's a skeleton crew perpetually here right now. And uh, one of the projects is now 18 months behind townhouse project was originally scheduled to be delivered in 18 months. That was three years ago, three years that those people put their deposits down and they're still waiting on their townhouse. It's, it's a 12 unit complex, 12 townhouse units. That's it. And it's a major developer, but that's the struggle with labor and materials. So it is interesting. Gurdit, thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, sweeping changes, right? I just, I look at the delays. There's a condo site actually just up behind here. And I was speaking with a few different people that, in the developer and a few people at City Hall. And it is uh, two years delayed now over permits. Permits, two years and they figure at least another year away from beginning construction. That condo project, I think it's 54 units, if I'm not mistaken, um, will take from the time they bought the land to completion, it'll actually be close to 15, no, it'll be closer to 20 years by the time the smoke clears on that. Uh, but from the time they said, hey, this is a piece of dirt we want to build these condos on, we'd like to start building them uh, to the time that they're done, it will be eight years, eight years. That's what they're tracking for 54 condos. So yeah, you know, as I say, what are we going to do? And who pays for the delays? You know who pays? You and I, right? The end user, the end user pays for the delays. That land, the financing on it, the interest expense accumulating, right? I mean, we're just, that's the way we go. Anyhow, oh, Pamela, thank you, but I don't think so. Yeah, that would be a you know, you got to hand it to people who do run for office, right? Like love them or hate them. You got to you gotta hand it to them, like to step into a role where instantly 50% of the population hates your guts and thinks you're a horrible human being, even though they know nothing about you at all. Um, that's just not a really desirable gig. And I, I think the PM gets paid about 360 grand a year, which is certainly decent money, but I don't know. You tell me what you think's easier, doing 40 or 50 million in mortgage volume in a year or being the prime minister. I mean, which role would you want? I don't think there's very many people that would want that job. I think I think most would prefer to make, you know, 20 outbound phone calls a day and uh, do 40 or 50 million in volume. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and a brute well, never mind a job review every uh every year. There's the job review every few hours. Right, you're you're getting judged constantly. All right, that's it. 